And one of the things that we should have learned over the past 20 years, but unfortunately don't, is that rabbinic statements framed in the language of halakha can have deadly consequences. When you call somebody, the prime minister of Rodev, eventually somebody's going to shoot them. So if you call, put insert group Amalek, somebody is eventually going to massacre their children, God forbid. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. While scrolling on Facebook, I saw that Rabbi Arya Clapper posted that he had discussed the question of whether the mitzvah to destroy Amalek is a chok, meaning a law which has an unknown reason, and I wanted to know more. He was very gracious, and we had a fascinating and short pre-Purim discussion of the meaning of Amalek in the world today, a world which often denies the very existence of absolute good and evil. We'll get to that discussion in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Arya Clapper is dean of the Center for Modern Torah Leadership and Rosh Beit Midrash of its internationally renowned Summer Beit Midrash program for men and women, which is currently accepting applicants. Rabbi Clapper has published and lectured extensively on the role played by Amalek in Orthodox theology and rhetoric. For more information, please see his Wikipedia page and also check out the links in the show notes of this podcast. Rabbi Arya Clapper, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Scott. I want to talk today, as we approach Purim and also Tanit Esther, the meaning of Amalek in our world. And the genesis of this conversation was actually a Facebook post I saw you put up a couple days ago. You are in Israel right now. And you mentioned that you were at one place saying that, oh, you didn't realize that in Israel, Parshat Zachor is really the beginning of Purim, which is absolutely true. And you talked about, is Amalek a chok? That was one thing which you said almost in passing was something that you talked about. That itself leads to other questions. Which part of Amalek? Remembering Amalek or destroying Amalek? There's so much to discuss. And because traditionally this is the season where we discuss these issues, I think it's important for us to get a real handle on this. And let's start with that exact question. Is Amalek a chok? Chok meaning Allah whose reason we don't know. Is Amalek a chok? And please define that question as you will. So what I say in these shurim is that the, the idea that there's a distinction, that there are mitzvot that have no purpose at all, is something we get from Rashi, but that most Rishonim, the Ramam especially, the Radak, rejects. They think that all mitzvot have 
uh, have rational purposes. And in that context, of course, Amalek also has rational purpose. But what I suggest is that there are misvote that in particular times we need to relate to as Hukim. And that treating any genocide as being justifiable rational, rationally is completely out of place in our world. And I get this from uh, an essay by Ravarn Lichtenstein, which has been followed up by his son of Moshe Lichtenstein, in which um, he argues that the, that the reason that Shaul lost the kingship was not because he failed to kill a god, but by failing to kill a god, he implied that there was some way to rationalize the commandment to commit genocide. And therefore, and that turned his killing of the rest of Amalek into genocide. In other words, the very fact that he was willing to save somebody on whom he had mercy implied that it was pure genocide, as opposed to, I'm just following the will of God, I'm doing everything he said. Exactly right. And right, and so um, right, so I think that the idea behind Revolutionstein is that Amalek has to be an absolute hook. Anytime you think you can rationalize why you're committing genocide, you're doing it wrong. And I think it ties into all the commentaries who say that the mitzvah never applies until you mot Hamashiach. Um, right, so there's no way it can be carried out in the real world. And therefore, I think you know the first thing I would say about Amalek in this world is that anytime somebody seeks to apply Amalek to another case other than genetic Amalek, what they're doing is rationalizing it, and thereby, by Revolutionstein's criteria, they're turning the people that they convince into mass murderers. Okay, then let me ask you about the well-known Brisker approach. I think it's originally said in the name of Chaim Brisker, though I'm not sure, that any entity, meaning any nation or community, that has the singular goal to destroy the people of Israel has a halachic din, a halachic status, I suppose, of Amalek with all that implies. Now, I do know that Rav Norman Lamzatzal wrote in an article, which I read recently, that he takes this as homiletics rather than as a legal reality. However, I do know that some people understand this literally, that that's how the briskers understand it. What do you say about that? So um, I have on my search sheet, right, the, uh, Dr. Stanley Boyland, in, uh, in the halachic perspective on the Holocaust, uh, quotes the Rav directly as saying that actually it's not Dina Amalek, we have a shame Amalek, but not Dina Amalek. And that's a way of trying to allow the category of Amalek to exist without the command for genocide. It doesn't apply to the women and It children. doesn't have a command, even though you can call them Amalek, but it has no halachic ramifications. It doesn't have those halakhic ramifications. Um, but I think that, the you know, and I, in different terms, I point out, I think this is uh, an insupportable vort in the Rambam. Just halak, pure halakhically is insupportable. And I think Rav Lichtenstein's letter, which originally was written, you know, to Prime Minister, Prime Minister Begin in the aftermath of the Sabra and Shatila massacres, um, I think was written directly against this. And if you look at the other, categ- the other categories when people have applied on the lake, uh, most recently, so we don't, we're not political, there was an article by non-Orthodox rabbi uh, two or three years ago, I think, maybe a little more, more than that, which he argued that those who oppose abortion are Amalek. And most recently, the editor of Kakira published an op-ed, an editorial in Kakira and then doubled down saying that all liberal Democrats are Amalek. And one of the things that we should have learned over the past 20 years, but unfortunately don't, is that rabbinic statements framed in the language of halakha can have deadly consequences. When you call somebody, the prime minister of Rodev, Eventually, somebody's going to shoot them. So if you call, put insert group Amalek, somebody is eventually going to massacre their children, God forbid. And therefore, um, yeah, I think that it would, and I've written this explicitly, that we should stop quoting that brisker vert because we should have learned by now. Maybe there was an era where that was not the case. There was another controversy about this when um, Professor Ellie Stern of Yale, I think, misinterpreted a long article by, by Rebukhan Wasserman as calling for the, you know, for the extermination of leftists. I think that was wrong, but if he could make that misinterpretation, probably somebody else could also. So I think we should, I think we should you know, declare a moratorium 
on the application of Amalek, Mechiyat Amalek anyway. All right, then let's move on to Zechirat Amalek, the commandment to remember what Amalek did to us. If we're not going to really emphasize the idea of destroying Amalek, then I'll ask two questions about that. First of all, what exactly is the requirement to remember Amalek? And second of all, why is there such a strong emphasis on it? In other words, Parshat Zachor might be the Shabbat that the most people go to shul of any Shabbat during the year because you can't miss Parshat Zachor, even though there are opinions that say, for example, Parshat Parah is also Midoraita Torah law. And yet Parshat Zachor is the one that everybody has to show up for. And of course, all of Purim, from some perspectives, is built around this concept of remembering what Amalek did. So how do we relate to the law of remembering Amalek? So I think you suggested to me in an email, and I thought I thought that had a lot of truth to it, that Amalek stands as a symbol that there are things that are evil, there are positions that are evil, and it's really important that we put up as a marker that we don't think that all that all moral issues are relative. I think there's even a, a stronger position, which emerges from the Bravanel that Rav Moshe Luxenstein's version of his father's work is actually directly opposed to, but it's it's important. The Rabbanel says that Somebody does something to you, and the something that somebody does to you right, generates what we would call a cycle of violence. So you can easily forget that there's a right and wrong involved in it. And so it's important to constantly, right, you know, if the battle is ongoing, not to say that, you know, at the first time that you slip in the battle, all the morality has shifted. Now you're just two school children fighting, you know, fighting, and he started, he, he started. No, there actually are principles behind it. Uh, so I think that's a really valuable idea also, to recognize that it's true that in the course of a moral struggle, there will often be moments where the side that is fighting for good does something that is evil, and the side that's not fighting for evil does something that is good, but that there's a value in keeping in, right, in keeping track of the large picture and saying, no, you know what, when you're fighting battles, you often do things wrong, but there's still an underlying right and wrong of the situation uh, that matters. I think that the midst of Zechirat Amalek, you know, it has consequences that are often valuable and is not as dangerous as the consequences of the mitzvah, of thinking of the mitzvah of Mechir Amalek as rational. How about the fact, though, that the mitzvah of remembering what Amalek did really presents things in absolute black and white, very much not the way you just described, the way things usually are in the real world. Yes, there are exceptions. We can, I mean, I don't want to start saying the Nazis occasionally did something good. As far as I know, they were pure evil. But largely, even if you look at the war now between Russia and Ukraine, it seems like there's a good guy and a bad guy, but obviously there might be some good guys on the bad side and some bad guys on the good side. And your political positions aside, generally in the world, most sides have a bit of right with them even when they're wrong and a bit of wrong with them even when they're right. So how do we understand the black and white nature of Amalek? If I were to say it almost disrespectfully, I don't mean it like this, but almost the cartoon villain, all bad all the time. How are we supposed to relate to that kind of understanding of Amalek? So I, I think that's exactly the point. Um, I, I love quoting Lincoln's second inaugural where he talks about with courage in the right as God gives us to see the right, that you can never really be certain and situations are never absolutely black and white, but you have to make decisions anyway. And right, so sometimes you have to act as if things are black and white, even though they're not. And so Amalek is a reminder of that, you know, that at the end of the day, when you make a decision, it doesn't matter so much whether they're making a decision because it's, 50, right, because it's mostly right or wrong, or you have to act that way. And I think that it's valuable to be reminded that understanding, understanding very deeply can be a, a way of avoiding responsibility for taking action. Uh, Rav Luxenstein liked to quote a dialogue between Voltaire and some salon woman where the, uh, in France where the woman says to Voltaire, to understand all is to forgive all. And Voltaire responds, let us not understand too much. Let us therefore not understand too much lest we forgive too much. Mm-hmm. 
right? So I think that's, that's the idea, right? You know, yes, it's always possible to understand the point of view and you can write a much more complex version of it. And there's a lot of value of that a lot of the time. And it's also important that sometimes you just have to say and yeah, you also did things to them, but you know what? In the big picture, that's right. There's a right and a wrong and you have to keep that in mind. I think that's an important point nowadays, especially because we live in such an age of moral relativism when looking at everything in the world. Everyone is constantly trying to say that, well, you know, really, both sides are wrong. <laughs> Very rarely will we say both sides are right. Both sides are wrong, and uh, you can never look at yourself as justified in any way. In particular, of course, I think about the conflict between Israel and its neighbors, whether the Palestinians or other Arab nations that have not yet made peace with Israel, or non-Arab nations that have not made peace with Israel. And... Too often, I think, that even among religious Jews, we hear this narrative that Israel is really in the wrong, and by so doing, we're kind of saying Israel is illegitimate. It's one thing to say that Israel has made mistakes and there are some things it needs to do better. It's another thing to say that Israel, therefore, because it has made some mistakes, is completely in the wrong and its case is not justifiable. That's completely wrong. And of course, I'm not comparing Israel's enemies to Amalek. I am not doing that. I am willing to say, however, that Israel's narrative is a just and right narrative. And even though Israel can make mistakes, as does any country, it doesn't fundamentally undermine Israel's entire right to be a state or its fundamental justification as a good country. Too often, I think even religious Jews lose sight of that. Right. And especially it can't be paralyzed by the existence of, of, of some element of wrong on your side and right on the other. Mm -hmm. I think it's very true. So let me ask you, Rabbi Clapper, how do you relate to Purim today? What is it that we're celebrating on Purim? And the reason I'm asking that is that it's not just the destruction of Amalek. I know that some people have suggested, and I'm not, I'm not agreeing with this, but they say it's not just that we destroyed Amalek, which was genocidal towards us. In response, we were genocidal towards Amalek. We went and destroyed them for no purpose except to destroy the anti-Semites out there. Now, presumably, we would say those are people who were trying to kill Jews. It was a effectively self-defense. But how do you relate to that celebration? What exactly are we celebrating on Purim? You know, so I, I'm much happier, you know, instinctively celebrating the fact that we were saved and the fact that and the fact that we killed them. <laughs> and I think that's probably a, uh, yeah, I would probably recommend that, uh, recommend that to others. Uh, I don't see any evidence that we committed a genocide, right? That we, we, there is no evidence that we killed their children. I don't see any hint in the Megillah that we are carrying out the mitzvah of Mechiyat Amalek. Uh, I think there was a battle. We were in danger, and we won. Um, and then we could talk, you know. And, and I think uh, Rav David Silver has a really, you know, really good reading um, that you can watch. You know, the Jewish religious sensibility develop at the end of the Megillah that the mitzvot of mitzvot of matanot of unim they start coming in uh, over time because it takes time to move from you know from a war footing to a constructive society. Uh, but one of the the ideas I like is the Gemara. I think in Makos, which says that there are more are miklat. Um, in the in the cities of the tribes who were the Chalusim, because even though everything they did is justified, but just the act of engaging in war is um, is bad for your soul. Uh -huh. uh, unless you're really constantly, you know, over time, individual people can care, but as a group, it's going to right, it, it's going to coarsen you. And so there were always more roads in that. You know, I don't know if that's true. I hope it's not true of contemporary wars. We have different kinds of damage that soldiers suffer nowadays. But that would be my take. You know, I'm not. I, I, I don't focus these. I don't focus my perm celebration on the reenactment, reenactments of the killing of the anti-Semites. I've heard that Professor Yishai Leibowitz used to spend 
the first day of Purim in Jerusalem so he wouldn't have to celebrate it, and the second day, Shushan Purim outside Jerusalem so he wouldn't have to celebrate it. Regardless of the halachic propriety of doing so, he obviously was bothered by the question I just asked, which again, I'm not agreeing with. I'm just asking for your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, but I'm told that, you know, that is, that's one of the stories that are not true, but they don't tell oh, okay. stories like that. They don't tell stories like that about you and me. Right? <laughs> so it's, like, it's the kind of thing that Professor Leibowitz would have done. Uh, I, I think there are also some people who has a kapura for him, you know, trying to do it the other way around. <laughs> that's certainly true. Okay. I, you know, I think that the risk there is that you end up delegitimizing, self, delegitimizing self-defense. And Professor Leibowitz ended up, you know, in, in a situation where, you know, while he's a fascinating thinker, we ended up calling Jewish soldiers Nazis um, because, of, because of treatment of the Palestinians. And I think that's, you know, again, I think that's where the distinction between Zahira and Mechia is really important, um, right? That, that, that if you can't, if you can't pre- preserve any situation in which you say, you know what, they tried to kill us, right? We killed them first. That's good. Right. Uh, another way of, of embodying in Jewish tradition is, that we say that the, God stopped the angels from singing when we crossed when we crossed when the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. He didn't stop us from singing. Mm-hmm. So we end up compromising, and we say Hallel only on the first days of of Pesach, which are the reenactments when we were there, and not when we remembered as history. I think that's also a really important distinction to what extent Purim is reenactment. As reenactment, there's more room for celebration of, of what we did, and if, to the extent that it's memory, then I think that it would be very dangerous to um, to do it that way. Robert Clapper, I want to ask you something else. I've been speaking to several people who have argued with some of the approaches which I've presented over the past several months, which have implied that there is an ethic independent of halacha. And what you're saying now about our moral obligation vis-a-vis Amalek, or specifically the fact that it's a chok, something which you can't understand, the fact that when it comes to the mitzvah of destroying Amalek, it should be absolutely put out of practice and assume that it remains a purely messianic hope slash uh, necessity, call it what you will. So I'd like to ask you in those terms, what do you think about that idea? It is a larger question, of course. What do you think about the fact that you're assuming right now that the Torah is not necessarily giving me a moral approach, it's giving me something which I have to know, but my morality comes from elsewhere to say that this is not something which I want to apply. The reason I'm asking again is because some people would say, if it's in the Torah, it's by definition moral, and the fact that I don't understand it doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it, it means that I of course should do it and rationalize it as necessary or don't bother rationalizing it. The Torah says it's good, so by definition it's good. What's your approach when it comes to that? Um, and so I need to, you know, mention, you know, of course, Ryan Lofsenstein's article about this, where it becomes um, a semantic question, um, because there are it, there are broader notions of Torah than halacha, and there are broader notions of halacha than things that are clear in books. But that's not the way I answer it for my students. The way I answer it for my students is by quoting um, the following sugya. The, the Gemara says that there are three things that you have to give up your life rather than do. Right, idolatry, what's short, you know, adultery slash incest, and uh, and murder. The Gemara says, what's the source for it that you have to give up your life rather than commit idolatry? There's a pasuk which says, you love God with all your heart, and all your soul, even if he takes your soul. Okay, how do we know that you have to um, give up your life rather than commit adultery? So the answer to that is that there's a pasuk that draws an analogy between adulterous rape and murder. Okay, now the Gemara says, but how do I know that I have to, right? If you're telling me that the reason I have to give up my life rather than commit adulterous rape or commit um, it rather is, is um, because of an analogy to murder, how do I know murder? And the Gemara says, murder, I know because it's just rational. But who says that my blood is greater than yours? Now, what's powerful about this, Sugya, is you would think 
that the question of what you have to give up your life for is maybe one, one of the central questions that a relig- religious tradition should answer. Anyway, the Torah doesn't answer it. Not only does the Torah not answer it, the Torah says that you can't interpret this book properly unless you have that moral presumption, because you won't know what the purpose of the analogy between adulterous rape and murder is. So that sugya tells you that you have that there's a morality which is prior to halakha, and you have to you interpret halakha on the basis of it. Where that morality comes from, you know, you, it comes from the you can say it comes from the totality of Torah. You can say it comes from right. It comes from something that God implanted in you. You can say it comes from reason. That's irrelevant. But you can't say the halakha is self-sufficient because there you have a sugya which tells you that one of the most fundamental issues in halakha and in interpreting halakhic texts requires a prior ethical commitment. But some people would argue that that prior ethical commitment we have now, even if theoretically it is implanted in us by God, or it comes from our knowledge of Torah in general, for most of us, it comes from society. And society's morals change. Society's morals are not the same as morality, say, 200 years ago. And therefore, how am I to know whether my morality now, which I am imposing on the Torah, so to speak, how am I to be sure that I'm simply not taking the values and norms of contemporary society, which may not be objectively moral, but I think they're moral because that's how I grew up. How do I know that? How do I know that my morals are actually objectively true? So there are two ways to answer that question. The first is maybe there's no way to know that your morals are objectively true, just like there's no way to know that your halakhic interpretation is correct. And the premise of the question that certainty is attainable is incorrect, right? That's, right, that's, um, that's answer number one. Answer number two is you could give the same historical survey of methods of interpreting historical texts and say, right, how do you know? Right, how do I know that my model of interpreting, right, you know, the once upon a time, you know, there wasn't brisk, and then there was brisk, and then there was pilpul, and then right. So, in general, I would say uh, that the belief that Torah can give you certainty is a fundamental violation of Lava Shemayim. Um, right, I think that's the way that's the way I frame it. Right, the Torah doesn't promise you certainty. And I don't know that I would want certainty because certainty is like you know the Vilagon turning down, like the Vilagon turning down the Malach teaching him all all the all the Torah and dreams. He doesn't have to make the effort. So I think that part of being human being, the Torah imposes upon us the responsibility to make good decisions. And certainty takes away that you know a, a magic formula where you always get to certainty takes that away. Um, so I yeah in I don't know. I, I admit that this is a question that when I was younger I obsessed about for a long time. Um, and to some extent, that was because I knew a lot more other things before I knew Torah. And over the years, for better or for worse, because I've forgotten the other stuff and, my, and I've been more professionally in the Torah, so the balance has shifted. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it's just one of those paradoxes that you grow to live with in life. I don't obsess about that question anymore. It doesn't really bother me so much. I asked you before, how do you relate to Purim? Now I'll say, how does one celebrate Purim now? What should we be thinking about when we celebrate? And how does one celebrate properly, including the notion of destroying Haman, destroying evil, while at the same time celebrating our redemption from potential genocide? Uh, it's like a really, it's a really interesting question, and I'm not usually an, ex, you know, an experiential expert. Um, but I think there may be, you know, here I just say very, very tentatively, you know, it may be that there's a value in a day of the year when you, you know, when you let go of nuance, right? It was thought, right? You know, when you say, look, for today, and I'm not possible, and it's not a Lamasa thing, right? We're just running, we're just running plays and, you know, and, writing, and, write, and writing literature. Um, so there's a day in which you can sort of um, live in a world, you know, in a world of black and white, because you need, you need a moment of black and white in order to go back into a really complex world um, and be able to make and be able to make decisions. I think that's probably, you know, let's say, you know, Purim is a day in which 
look, they tried to kill us. That's terrible, right? We got right. We got there first. That's great. Um, <laughs> you know, um, right? I think, I think that would be the uh, you know. And whereas you know, every every other day year, you know, I would be focusing on well, maybe we should be like angels and not you know, and not be and not be not be not be rejoicing at the death of the wicked. You know what? For one day, it's not so terrible. Now, if it turned out that that you know that turned out you know if people started going on bloody rampages on Purim because they started taking it as a real world thing, I would have the same objection to that as I have against taking Mechiat Amalek in real world consequences. I think that that's probably true in my own experience, right? That what I enjoy about Purim is the you know, and, and even though I don't get drunk, um, is a day you know maybe I'm not going to go so far as Atelier but at least I can get to a point maybe when I think there's just Ra and Tov, you know. Well, my own understanding, I think, actually, the Mishnah Baruch says something very similar, is that Adelaide Abba bin Araham and the Baruch Mordechai is that Baruch often means to add and Aurora means to detract. So you can't tell the difference in the world what's better, to add good or detract from evil, which means I'm already probably out say right now because I still don't know the answer. So perhaps yeah, that's where it course, is. I mean, when I insert a postmodernist moment, of course, Beirach is often used, you know, it's often used, Lashon Sagina Hor also. Well, if we're going to go postmodernist, I actually read something by Rav Shagar this week where he compares Adelo Yada, the idea of getting drunk to the point that you do not know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai with Reish Hadlo Yada, the Kabbalistic concept of the mind that's too high to be knowable, the highest level of Atik, which itself is the highest level of the highest of the Sirot. Whatever, there's a lot to be said there. But anyway, Rabbi Ari Clapper, this has been very, very enlightening. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining me today and have a happy Purim. Thank you much. This was really... It's really enormous, enormously pleasurable. I hope we'll do it again. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.